Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. It is Tuesday, January 31st. I'm your reader, Kathleen. From the front page of the Gazette, this story by Grace King, Librarians Get Creative, Meet Readers on TikTok. Laura Moeller's advice for filming TikTok videos posted on the popular social media platform is, let go of pride and have fun with it. Moeller's is a Children and Family Services assistant librarian at the Marion Public Library. She enjoys filming creative videos for the social media platform to help educate the public about the services the library offers and entertain at the same time. After 22 years working in libraries, Moeller said she's noticed a misconception that libraries are supposed to be quiet. She's trying to turn that around with TikTok. You know, you've made it when you get shushed by a patron, Moeller said with a laugh. Last week, Moeller's held a story time for almost 50 toddlers. That wasn't quiet, she said. The Marion Public Library is joining libraries across the nation on the social media platform, dancing to viral songs and bonding with co-workers. Since joining TikTok a year and a half ago, the Marion Library has gained more than 370 followers. The video is posted on their profile. The handle is at Marion Public Library, all run together. Each receive hundreds of likes. Despite its popularity among librarians, Iowa state government departments and employees won't be found on TikTok. In December, Governor Kim Reynolds banned use of the social media platform on state-owned devices. Her order also prohibits state agencies from subscribing or owning a TikTok account. For some local libraries, the videos are a way of connecting with the public. People have begun directing questions to librarians to learn more about the services offered at the Marion Public Library. Kids see the librarians' faces on TikTok and feel like they already know them, making them feel more welcome when they visit the library. Becca Drouse, Marion Public Library children and adult programmer, agrees it's a great way to show the public libraries are more than quiet reading spaces. For one TikTok video, she slid down the library's new slide face first, the slide is intended for kids age 9 and younger. It's getting to show the fun and joy the space is, she said. On TikTok, the librarian's personalities can shine, said Ashley Osborne, Marion Library's marketing and special events manager. One of Osborne's favorite TikToks the library produced was with the Linmar High School cross-country team. She filmed them running books from the library's former location to its new building, to the tune of Let's Get Started by the Black Eyed Peas in October 2022. They loved it, and I think the public loves to see us collaborating. Libraries today are so much more than books, Osborne said. We have something for everybody, whether you're a reader, content creator, or someone who wants to learn how to sew. The Davenport Public Library also is meeting its patrons on TikTok and has almost <clears throat> 5,000 followers and more than 261,000 likes on all their videos. Their handle is at Davenport Public Library. We all did a happy dance when we saw how popular it was, said Brittany Peacock, Community Outreach Supervisor at the Davenport Public Library. Their TikTok page features smiling librarians sharing information 
about how the library operates and what programs and services are available. One example is how a library card can help people save money by renting textbooks for school instead of buying them. People come into the library and feel welcomed because they've seen the librarians on TikTok, Peacock said. Librarians partner with the library's teen advisory board, whose members help make decisions about the library's teen space, what books to buy, and summer reading prizes to create content. We really want to crush the stigma that libraries are cold and institutional. We want to show we have amazingly talented and welcoming people, Peacock said. If I ever need a pick-me-up, I'm going to our TikTok page. Also on the front page, and perhaps somewhat related, this story from the Washington Post, House Panel Zeroes In on Chinese-owned app TikTok. The new U.S. House Select Committee, charged with alerting Americans to the perils of a rising China, is zeroing in on TikTok the Chinese-owned social media application that has built a massive American following, despite suspicions that it could be used as a tool of foreign espionage or influence. The implications of this new scrutiny, part of a broadening congressional review of U.S. engagement with China, are unclear. Washington remains torn over whether it should ban the wildly popular app, order its company to be sold, or allow TikTok to keep scrolling across 100 million American smartphones. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, launched the committee as one of his first moves, naming 13 Republican members, including U.S. Representative Ashley Hinson of Marion. Democrats have yet to tap theirs. Representative Mike Gallagher, Republican Wisconsin, the chair's Excuse me, the panel's chair wants to ban the app or force its sale to an American buyer, citing data security issues and TikTok's potential use by Beijing as a weapon of propaganda. In an interview, he said the overlapping technology, privacy, and foreign policy questions raised by the app's meteoric U.S. growth illustrate why the wide-ranging committee is needed. Gallagher's objections to TikTok, which features user-created short videos, are shared by prominent Democrats. The Biden administration for months has been reviewing a TikTok proposal to restructure its operations to eliminate the risk of Chinese government control or influence. Some analysts believe that congressional action or the approach of the 2024 election could force the administration's hand. But the TikTok controversy is about more than just the fate of the latest Internet sensation. It also highlights a key challenge confronting the administration, how to define the parameters of an economic relationship with the nation it regards as the United States' principal strategic rival, one many in Congress describe as an outright enemy. Is there such a thing as a private company in China? I'm not sure there is, Gallagher said. This is what makes the new Cold War so much more complicated than the old Cold War. We never had to decouple with the Soviet Union. As U.S. policymakers' view on China have hardened into reflexive distrust, Chinese companies that governors and mayors once wooed for job-creating investments now are seen as Trojan horses for the Chinese Communist Party. 
Republican lawmakers want to prohibit Chinese purchases for American farmland. Democrats, too, have adopted a more jaundiced view of the risks involved in dealing with the world's second-largest economy. The Biden administration is readying new limits on U.S. investment in Chinese companies months after the president banned China from buying advanced American computer chips or the equipment to make them. Despite a growing geopolitical rivalry, two-way U.S.-China trade in 2022 is likely to set a record, while companies such as Apple, General Motors, and Caterpillar each year sell billions of dollars' worth of goods to Chinese customers and thus are vulnerable to retaliation from Beijing for any U.S. action against TikTok. After 40 years of steadily increasing commerce between the two nations, Determining which deals are appropriate now and which impair security will not always be easy. Caught in the middle are multinational corporations. Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, for instance, this month rejected a potential bid by Ford to locate a new electric vehicle battery plant in the state, saying the automaker was acting as a front for China in seeking federal subsidies. Ford had been scouting the state for a joint venture with contemporary Amperex Technology, a Chinese producer of lithium-ion batteries. The $3.5 billion plant reportedly would have meant 2,500 jobs for the state. The debate over how far to go in thinning economic ties is occurring against a backdrop of public hostility toward China. In a Pew Research Center poll last year, 82% of Americans surveyed said they had an unfavorable view of the country, more than twice the figure in 2012 when President Xi Jinping took office. In an earlier era, TikTok might have been an emblem of collaboration. The service was developed by a subsidiary of ByteDance, a Beijing-based startup that drew funding from American investment firms such as Tiger Global Management, Kohlberg, Kravis, Roberts & Company, Carlyle Group, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley. A few months after ByteDance was incorporated in 2012, for example, Susquehanna International Group Limited in Philadelphia bought 15% of the company in a $5 million financing round. Susquehanna's stake is now valued at $15 billion, according to a report by the Internet Governance Project, at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Former President Donald Trump in 2020 sought to ban TikTok, but a federal judge blocked the move. Now, with the new congressional panel, Capitol Hill is set to wade in. The select committee cannot author legislation, but plans to issue a report. TikTok says it already has spent $1.5 billion on its proposal to address Washington's security concerns by removing its U.S. operations from ByteDance's control. Earlier this month in Maryland, TikTok opened its first transparency center. Each day, teams of software specialists from Oracle review the app's computer code line by line, aiming to ensure that no American user data is being surreptitiously transferred to the Chinese government and that the site's algorithm is not serving up Chinese propaganda. It may not be enough. Despite offering to firewall its U.S. operation, 
TikTok is viewed by critics as a proxy for Chinese communism. I am not making the case for total decoupling. It's not in our economic interest, Gallagher said. I don't have a problem with Wisconsinites buying cheap t-shirts from China or with Wisconsin farmers selling soybeans to China, but it's almost going to be on a case-by-case basis. Also on the front page, this story by Vanessa Miller, UI accused of breaching contract in landmark deal. Just three years into the University of Iowa's landmark 50-year deal for the private operation of its utility system as a way to raise money for education, cracks are emerging in the $1.165 billion agreement with the operator accusing the UI of breaching its obligations. In a federal lawsuit filed Thursday, the UI Energy Collaborative outlined four main ways the UI was reneging, refusing to pay money it owes, rescinding approval to repair the utility system, refusing to file casualty insurance claims, and demanding payment for unplanned utility outages, even though the university's representatives participated in the very meetings and discussions planning for those events. UI spokesman Steve Schmadeke said the UI and its public-private partners have a disagreement regarding some of the terms and conditions of the deal. The university has been working with its utilities partner to resolve these differences, he said in a statement. We are disappointed that our utilities partner has a different interpretation of the contract and felt the need to file a lawsuit against the university. We are eager for the court to provide us with a clear definition of the contract for both parties to adhere to. The agreement dates back four years when the UI, in 2019, announced plans to pursue a public-private partnership for the operation and improvement of its massive utility system, generating enough energy to power a town of 30,000 homes. Mirroring similar deals at other campuses, like at Ohio State University, the Public-Private Partnership, or P3 for short, involved the UI, a contracted concessionaire to develop the system, an operator contracted by the concessionaire to run the system, and a group of banks to finance the deal. The UI launched its pursuit by requesting proposals from prospective private operators, and the winning bid came from a group of foreign and U.S.-based businesses and individuals, including Meridian Infrastructure, North American Corporation, NG North America, Inc., and Hannon Armstrong Sustainable Infrastructure Capital, Inc. The UI in December 2019 announced plans to pick that group, the UI Energy Collaborative, and close the deal in March 2020. The collaborative paid the UI an upfront $1.165 billion, of which the university pulled $158.4 million to pay off existing utility system debt, $12.1 million to pay consulting fees, and $8.6 million to cover other related expenses, according to a recent report from the State Auditor's Office. The UI deposited the remaining $985.9 million into an endowment administered by a new UI Strategic Initiative Fund, a nonprofit the university created to manage the investment, grant money to the UI to support concessionaire payments, 
and distribute proceeds across campus to advance its strategic plan and purposes. UI officials have said they expect to pay about $3.027 billion from the fund over the deal's duration to cover operating costs and to fund up to $15 million annually in strategic initiatives. In the lawsuit, the collaborative said it was enthused to partner with the university and remains fully committed to helping the university meet its sustainability goals and bring its utility system into the 21st century. But for nearly three years now, UI has refused to recognize or perform its contractual obligations, according to the lawsuit. Payment issues started, according to the suit, when both sides were calculating the utility fee the UI owed for the 2021 budget year. The university, with its billion dollars now in hand, started looking looking for ways to chip away the collaborative's rights. Specifically, the UI refused to pay certain expenses that were supposed to be included under the definition of operations and maintenance costs, a category that covers employee compensation, administrative expenses, and maintenance of the collaborative's credit rating. UIEC has tried to help the university understand that its position is unsupportable, but after extensive discussions and exchanges of correspondence, the university has wrongfully refused to pay amounts clearly due, according to the lawsuit, pointing to a $1.5 million operating fee. That's how much the collaborative owes the private operator, NG Generation North America LLC, for the day-to-day operation and maintenance of the utility system. The university knew about this operator fee before it accepted UIEC's winning bid for the P3 concession, the lawsuit asserts. The lawsuit also accuses the UI of, among other things, refusing to include in its utility fee the collaborative's compensation package for its chief executive and chief financial officers, totaling about 600000 in 2020 and escalating annually. As stated in the state auditor's investigative report, the university was to pay for operating and maintenance costs, but the collaborative alleged the UI refused to cover expenses related to two utility system components that needed immediate repair. The university at first agreed to the repairs and to finance them, but when the components broke before the repairs could be completed, the university reneged on its promises, according to the lawsuit. One of those involved roofs of the main power plant and domestic water production utility system buildings due to age degradation and loss of watertight integrity. The collaborative said the UI accepted a proposal and agreed to fund the repair, but before that happened, the roofs were further damaged by the August 2020 derecho. In mid-December 2020, the university changed its position and informed UIEC that it was not going to pay for any of the required repair overhaul for either of the two casualty events or make insurance claim for the damage, according to the lawsuit. In other words, after approving a plan and costs to fix these issues, the university turned around and sought to reverse its approval. Countering the collaborative's demand, the UI cover more of its costs, the university has threatened UIEC with litigation, according to the lawsuit. The university alleges, without merit, 
that it is entitled to potential key performance indicator compensation under the concession agreement due to alleged unplanned utility outages. Those outages were actually planned, according to the collaborative, accusing the UI of sending in a notice in June 2021 that a chilled water outage was unplanned and entitled the university to $5 million in compensation. The chilled water outage, which occurred in March and April of 2021, was a planned outage, according to the lawsuit. The parties discussed the outage repeatedly before it happened, beginning as far back as December 2020. UIEC put the university on actual notice in writing of the outage, and the parties actively coordinated and prepared for the outage for months. In November 2021, the UI sent the collaborative another notice related to a performance standards and other failure for an electrical outage of Spence Labs. Like the chilled water outage, the Spence Labs outage was planned, the lawsuit asserts. The planning efforts involved multiple meetings between the operator and the university and are well documented, it, documented in the correspondence between them. The collaborator is asking a judge to not only award it the money it argues the UI owes, but to set the record straight about what its payment should include going forward. Turning to Iowa Today on page 2, rescuers save a snowmobiler from icy Coralville Lake. A snowmobiler fell through the ice Sunday on Coralville Lake and was rescued by the North Liberty Fire Department, according to the city. The firefighters and Johnson County Ambulance Service were dispatched at 5.07 p.m. to an area just south of the Mahaffey Bridge Road Bridge, where they found a person in the water holding on to the ice. Firefighters used ice rescue suits, a rapid deployment craft, and ropes to rescue the individual from the water. One firefighter was injured in the rescue and transported to the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics along with the snowmobiler, whose name was not released. The fire department said that because of widely variable weather conditions across Iowa, ice on the reservoir and in the Iowa River has deteriorated and refrozen quickly, which creates dangerous conditions for recreation. Additionally, the reservoir is a river with a current. This can also cause the ice to be unstable, Taking risks on the ice also puts rescuers at risk, much like it did in this situation, the city said in a statement. Ice is never 100% safe. The emergency services urge the public to take the time to properly assess the ice before going out on it and have a survival plan before recreating on the ice. Turning now to the Insight page, the guest editorial today is from the New York Daily News, the title... Acts that defy humanity. Memphis police chief said video of the January 10 beating by five police officers that killed 29-year-old Tyree Nichols included acts that defy humanity. We had fair warning, but the 66 minutes of body-worn and lamp-mounted camera images released Friday morning confirmed the chief's characterization and then some. Here were officers pulling over Nichols' car for no clear reason. Here was Nichols pleading, I'm just trying to go home. Here were men charged with enforcing the law, punching and kicking and striking a civilian as he lay on the ground, apparently handcuffed and tasing him. Here was Nichols crying out for his mother. 
Here were cops deploying pepper spray and accidentally spraying one another. Here was a painful 20-minute delay between the beatdown and the arrival of an ambulance. This was less a police action than a gang assault on a black man, a murder by violent felons who happened to be collecting government salaries, wearing uniforms, and wielding the power of the state. The wheels of justice must now turn against the officers who, thank God, have already been fired, but an inquiry must dig much deeper. In the wake of the May 2020 murder of George Floyd, Black Lives Matter marches righteously reminded America that the lives of those with darker skin are all too often treated as disposable. No linear connection can here be drawn between racism, whether overt or subtle, and the actions of the five black cops. Of course, a non-white officer can also betray bias against a non-white civilian. Overzealous use of force against black men is a bedeviling police problem, no matter the skin color of the individual in uniform. But hard questions must also be asked about the hiring of these men, about their training, and about the culture of the poisonously named Scorpion Unit. Police are just are often justified in their use of force. When they wantonly harm people, they must pay a price, swift and severe, and the bigger forces behind their crimes must be systemically pulled apart. And again, that's a reprint from the New York Daily News. The syndicated columnist today, Catherine Edwards, is has titled her column, When Will Workers Get Paid Leave? Most wealthy countries provide workers with paid time off when they become parents, fall ill, or need to care for loved ones. It's one of the great no-brainers of public policy. It benefits newborns, families, and the entire economy. The U.S. is a glaring exception. It could reap enormous gains by creating a national paid family leave program. Sadly, its best chance to do so probably won't come until 2035. Commonly associated with maternity, paid leave does much more. It allows anyone with an acute health issue, either their own or a family member's, to take the time they need without losing income or their job. Mothers who have it are healthier, work more, and earn more. Their families are less likely to experience food insecurity or poverty. Their children are better off from infancy through at least elementary school. Businesses report improved productivity, performance, turnover, and morale. The effects on public health and labor force attachment make the whole country more prosperous. In the U.S., however, only a minority of states offers paid leave, benefits vary widely, aggravating inequality, and any state finance program will constantly be at risk, given state legislators' race to the bottom competition to attract businesses with lower taxes. The best solution would be a federal program administered along with Social Security. Workers, employers, or both would contribute payroll taxes to a trust fund, and workers taking leave would receive benefits based on past earnings. Administrative costs would be very low, and universal coverage would spread protection and risk across the largest possible pool of workers, including independent contractors. Such an expansion of Social Security's portfolio wouldn't be unprecedented. The program has been similarly augmented in 1939 
to add benefits for the children and spouses of deceased workers in 1956 to create a program for workers who became disabled and in 1965 to create a health insurance program for the elderly, Medicare. Problem is, Social Security is facing its own crisis. Its trust fund, the surplus saved up to cover the retirement of the baby boom generation, is set to run out in 2035. After that, benefits will have to be paid out of current income, entailing an estimated uniform cut of 20% for more than 70 million recipients, and probably triggering an immediate recession, along with skyrocketing elderly poverty. Averting that horrible outcome will be a politically fraught task, requiring Congress to agree on a combination of tax increases and benefit reforms to ensure Social Security's longer-term viability. Legislators probably won't touch the program until they absolutely must, which means that any significant change, including paid family leave, will have to wait until 2035. The longer the Congress kicks the can on Social Security, the longer a program that could immensely benefit millions of Americans will get kicked along with it. And that's submitted by Catherine Ann Edwards, a labor economist and independent policy consultants. Her column first appeared in Bloomberg Opinion. And one community letter today is titled, Fourth Graders Want to Learn About Iowa. The fourth graders at Aviston Elementary in southern Illinois will be studying five different regions in the United States. We will learn about each region's environment, climate, resources, history, and highlights. We are hoping to get volunteers to mail us some items from their state and region. In the past, we have the kids open the mail in small groups, mount the information, and arrange the items in front of large, decorated state boards, and respond with thank you letters before opening the next piece of mail. Finally, each group will present and share the information with the rest of the class. A state fair also will be presented in the cafeteria to display the state boards, including all the items received for each state. At the end of the year, an auction is held and the students are able to purchase items with their awarded money, in quotes, that they earn in class. We are hoping that with your help, people who read this letter will be interested in mailing our class items pertaining to their state. This is such an amazing opportunity for our students. Please send items to fourth grade in care of Albers Aviston Elementary, 350 South Hull Street, Aviston, Illinois, 62216. A sincere thank you to anyone who is able to contribute. We appreciate the excitement you will add to our learning experience. And that's signed by Shelley Albers from Aviston, Illinois. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Tuesday, January 31st on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now we turn to today's obituaries, beginning with the short notices. First from Bertram, Frederick A. Johnson, 72, died Thursday, January 26th, Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Service, Cedar Rapids. Several from Decorah, first Arlen Bakken, 84, died Sunday, December 4, Gary D. Keefe, 
died Monday, December 12. And Evelyn Ode, 93, died Sunday, January 29. Helms Funeral Home in Decorah is assisting those families. From Lamont, Bernard J., known as Bernie Brickman, 61, died Sunday, January 29. Fawcett Schmidt's Funeral Home is in charge. From Lost Nation, Richard E. DeMoss, 95, died Sunday, January 29. Carson's Celebration of Life Center, Maquoketa. In Maquoketa, Sandra Green, age 75, died Friday, January 27th. Carson's Celebration of Life Center. In Marion, Arlene Brown, 87, died Saturday, January 28. Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home, Cedar Rapids. In Robbins, Rita Ann Coors, 94, died Sunday, January 29. Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home, Cedar Rapids. In Strawberry Point, Darlene Ann Wood, 69, died Monday, January 30. Leonard Muller Funeral Home and Crematory is in charge. In Toledo, Donald Lee Havron, 82, died Friday, January 27. Cruz Phillips Funeral Home is assisting. In West Union, Marjorie, known as Margie Marie Halverson, 92, died Friday, January 27. Burnham Wood Grau Funeral Home and Cremation Service. And in these other death notices, first, Teresa Sue Kruger, age 60, of Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, died Wednesday, January 25. The Thornburg Grau Funeral Home and Cremation Service is in charge. And from rural Eastman, Wisconsin, Wayne Edmund O'Brien, age 82, died Saturday, January 28. Again, Thornburg Grau Funeral Home, Prairie du Chien, is in charge. Turning now to the regular notices, first from Cedar Rapids, Cletus F. Davis, 82, died suddenly Saturday, January 28. A visitation will be held from 2 to 3 p.m. Friday, February 3, at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids. Interment will take place at the Linwood Cemetery Mausoleum in Cedar Rapids. Please share your memory or condolence at MurdochFuneralHome.com. In Trayer, Florence Sida, 90, died January 26th at Sunrise Hill Care Center in Trayer. The visitation will be Thursday, February 2, from 4 to 7 at St. Paul Catholic Church in Trayer with a rosary service at 7 p.m. Mass of Christian burial will be Friday, February 3, at 11 a.m. at St. Paul Catholic Church. The burial will follow in the church cemetery. Overton Funeral Home in Trayer is assisting the family. In Cedar Rapids, Kathleen, known as Katie Nicole Nolson, 56, passed away Friday, January 27th at Mercy Hospital. Services are at 11.30 a.m. Thursday at St. Patrick's Catholic Church with the Reverend Dennis Miller officiating. Friends may visit with the family at the church after 9.30 a.m., Burial is at 11.30 a.m. Friday at St. Joseph's Cemetery. Tian Funeral Home is assisting the family. From Cedar Rapids, Daniel, known as Dan E. Sandoval, age 81, passed away Wednesday, January 25th at the Views of Marion from complications of Alzheimer's. Visitation will be held from 4 to 6 p.m. on Tuesday, January 31st 
at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion. Visitation will be held one hour prior to service on Wednesday at the church. Funeral services will be uh, excuse me, Wednesday, February 1st at 11 a.m. at the Marion Methodist Church with full military honors by the Marion American Legion Post Number 298 and the United States Air Force Honors Detail. Entombment will be at 1.30 p.m. on Thursday, February 2nd at Sunset Memorial Gardens in McKesney Park, Illinois. The family would like to thank the nurses and staff at Memory Care at The Views and everyone at Hospice of Mercy. Please share a memory of Dan at MurdochFuneralHome.com. In Marion, Doris I. Buchler Fink, age 94, passed away Saturday, January 28th. Funeral services will be at 2 p.m. Thursday, February 2nd at McLaren's Rest Haven Chapel in West Des Moines. Visitation from 1 p.m. until the service time. A private family entombment will be at Rest Haven Mausoleum. Memorial contributions may be directed to West Des Moines United Methodist Church. From Keystone, Scott Allen Shalow, 53, died Saturday, January 28th from injuries suffered in a snowmobile accident. Mass of Christian burial will be held at 10.30 a.m. Thursday, February 2nd at Immaculate Conception Catholic Church, Van Horn, the Reverend Craig Stemel as celebrant. Burial will follow in Keystone Cemetery. Visitation will be held from 3 to 7 p.m. on Wednesday at the church in Van Horn. A memorial fund has been established to be used for a scholarship fund for Scott's future grandchildren. Online condolences can be left at philipsfuneralhome.com. In Cedar Rapids, Francis Carl Wolf, age 81. The family announces with great sadness his passing Saturday, January 28th, surrounded by his children and loving wife of 60 years. The Mass of Christian Burial will be held at St. Wenceslaus Catholic Church Thursday, February 2nd at 10.30 a.m., with a reception to follow at the Knights of Columbus, number 909, from 1 to 4 p.m. Please share a memory of Francis at MurdochFuneralHome.com. In Cedar Rapids, Joyce Frame Busher Berg, age 70, passed away peacefully with her husband by her side, January 29th, at the Dennis and Donna Oldorf Hospice House in Hiawatha. A private graveside service will be held at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Cedar Memorial is in charge of arrangements. Memorial donations may be made in Joyce's name to Hospice of Mercy. Online condolences can be left for the family at cedarmemorial.com. In Ladora, Linda L. Davis, 76, passed away, surrounded by family, January 28, at Compass Memorial Hospital in Marengo, Iowa. Visitation will be held on Saturday, February 11th at the Smith Funeral Home in Victor from noon to 5 p.m. with the family present from 3 to 5. Memorials may be designated to the Linda Davis Memorial Fund in care of Smith Funeral Home, P.O. Box 485 in Victor, Iowa, 52347. Memories and condolences can be shared online at smithfh.com. Com. In Marion, Paul Clarence Stadtmuller, 87, passed away Sunday, January 29th at his home, 
following an extended illness. Visitation will be from 4 to 6 p.m. on Wednesday, February 1 at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. Funeral service is at 10.30 a.m. on Thursday, February 2 at St. Paul's Lutheran, 915 27th Street in Marion. Burial will follow at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Memorials may be directed to the family and online condolences left at cedarmemorial.com. Also in Cedar Rapids, William, known as Bill L. Mantor, passed away January 18th. He was cremated and a memorial service will be held in May for the family. From Cedar Rapids, Martha Carol Smith Cromery, age 89, passed away at the Hiawatha Care Center Sunday, January 29. A memorial visitation will be held at the Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home Friday, February 3, from 4 to 7 p.m. Memorial contributions may be directed to the family and condolences left online at cedarmemorial.com. And lastly, from Claremont, Major Richard J. Barnes, USMC retired, passed away Friday, January 27th at his home in Claremont. Visitation will be Sunday, February 5, from 3 to 6 p.m. at St. Peter's Catholic Church, with the rosary at 2.30 p.m. There will also be a one-hour visitation before Mass at the church on Monday. A memorial Mass will be held at 10.30 a.m. Monday, February 6th at St. Peter's in Claremont. Burial with military rites will be at a later date in Claremont. Shooty Grau Funeral Home and Cremation Service is helping the family with arrangements. Turning to the sports page, it's wrestling season. Lisbon, a rare home underdog in regional duels. This story by K.J. Pilcher. Lisbon finds itself in an uncommon and unique situation. The Lions have been a perennial Class 1A wrestling power for decades. They have reached the state duels tournament 16 times since it began in 1987, qualifying each of the last eight seasons. 7th-ranked Lisbon will host number 24 Pleasantville in a regional dual semifinal tonight at Lisbon. The winner advances to face number 5 Wapsie Valley in the final immediately following with a state duels berth on the line. Sites were determined by the second Iowa Wrestling Coaches and Officials Association rankings two weeks ago with the regional duels field set by the final rankings last week. Lisbon and Wapsie Valley switched spots in the, spo in the poll, leading to a high-ranked team hitting the road. Tonight's area duels take place in various regions. In Class 3A, Linmar, Waverly, and Ankeny are hosts. In Class 2A, Manchester, Mount Vernon, and Williamsburg are hosts. And in Class 1A, Alburnett, Lisbon, and Wilton field the first rounds. In boys basketball, Western Christian climbs to the number one spot in a Class 2 ace poll, this by Jeff Johnson. There's a new top-ranked boys basketball team in 2A. That'd be Western Christian, which takes over the number one spot in the class in this week's Iowa High School Athletic Association poll. The Wolfpack at 14-1 and moved from third to first, replacing Central Lion, 13-1, and which dropped to second after a one-point loss last week to rival West Lyon. 
Afflington Parkersburg at 15-1, and one, slipped from second to fourth after suffering its first loss of the season to Gladbrook Rhinebeck. Roland Story, with 16-1 and one for a record, is third. Alburnett, which survived Central City in overtime Friday night, stayed at number nine. Cedar Rapids-Kennedy at 14-0 and 0 remains top-ranked in Class 4A. The class has had a pretty static top four of Kennedy, Waukee, Waukee Northwest, and West Des Moines Valley, with the other spots changing week to week. Sioux City East at 16-0 and 0 and Indianola at 14-2 flip-flopped at 5th and 6th this week. The Waterloo West rejoined the top 10 at number 7. Indianola fell to Norwalk 12-3 and 3 last week, with Norwalk making its first appearance in the 4A top 10 at 9th. There was a bit of moving and shaking in 3A, though Bondurant Farrar stays a solid number 1. Cedar Rapids Xavier dropped from 2nd to 6th after a loss to Mount Vernon. Marion climbed from 4th to 3rd. The big aforementioned win by Gladbrook Rhinebeck inched it up from 4th to 3rd behind number 1 Grandview Christian and number 2 North Lynn, who are both 16-0. and 0. North Lynn has a big game Thursday night at 6th-ranked Dunkerton. Turning now to the community page, here are some things to do today. In the exhibit uh, category, Memoryscape, check photographer Hansa Sakar's photographs stand as a center point to digital perfectionism using the wet collodion photography process, which can only be described as magical. That's at the National Czech and Slovak Museum from 9.30 to 4. And in the Cedar Rapids area Ge genealogy library, you can research your own family tree with the help of library volunteers. That's from 10 to 4 p.m. at the Cedar Rapids area genealogy library. Here are some Eastern Iowa briefs for today. From Madison, Wisconsin, the upcoming PBS Wisconsin Garden and Landscape Expo will feature a session led by Lisa Hinsman Howard of Cedar Rapids. She will present a seminar titled, Cheap Tricks Gardening, because you don't need to spend a fortune for fabulous. The Garden and Landscape Expo will be held at the Alliant Energy Center in Madison, Wisconsin, February 10th to 12th. Event hours are noon to 7 p.m., uh, 9 to 6 p.m., or 10 to 4 various days depending. The expo will feature more than 125 free educational seminars and demonstrations. Advanced discount tickets are available. You can visit wigardenexpo.com for details and to learn how to purchase tickets. In Makokoda, it's time to start thinking about your garden. Join the Makokoda Brewing and Jackson County Conservation from 1 to 3 p.m. February 5th at Makokota Brewing for a discussion about seeds and plants. A.J. Schultz of Convivium Urban Farmstead will chat about and provide resources on vegetable plants, seeds, and gardening. Tony Vorwald of Jackson County Conservation will chat and provide resources about native plants and how to integrate them into your home garden. Also, if you have vegetable seeds you want to share with other garden enthusiasts, come swap your seeds. There will be materials and information for you to package and share small amounts of vegetable seeds. 
This event is free and no registration is required. And Iowa City's downtown district is helping find perfect Valentine's Day gifts. This story by Isabella Zaluska. With Valentine's Day right around the corner, the Iowa City downtown district has shopping appointments available to help customers find the best gift for their loved one. Anyone wanting a little help finding the perfect gift is encouraged to book an appointment online through the downtown district's websites. Appointments are available now through February 6th. The personal concierge shopping program was first introduced during the holiday shopping season last year. It's designed for anyone who wants the help of a personal shopper to find the best gift for someone in their life from Iowa City's locally owned shops. The personal shopper does the searching, shopping, and delivery. The whole idea with all of our retail programs or services that we do is just to make it as easy as possible to shop downtown and to shop local, said Betsy Potter, the downtown district's director of creative services. Potter said the program received positive feedback over the holiday season. All the customers that registered for shopping appointments found gifts that fit their needs and were grateful for the offering, Potter said. Potter said the process is easy and something to try as people are looking for Valentine's Day gifts for friends, significant other, and family. The program is intended to work with any gift budget, list, or needs. There is no obligation to buy the suggested gifts. After registering for an appointment, customers submit who they are shopping for, a budget, and suggestions for what they're looking for. The downtown district's personal shopper, Frankie Schneckloff, then goes around downtown and sends suggestions of various ideas and products back to the customer. She does take her time to look at everything and, from a really great eye, try to get something that will fit every budget, Potter said about Schneckloff. If a customer has specific stores in mind, she will visit those first. The customers can decide if the gifts are a good fit and which should be purchased. The item is then delivered or shipped. There is free delivery in Iowa City, North Liberty, Corville, Tiffin, and West Branch. Potter said the shopping appointments will be offered again for Mother's Day in May and potentially other times this year as well when there is a demand. Turning to the Business 380 page, this story will be abbreviated in the interest of time. North Liberty hopes to create an entertainment district. A proposed $20 million development in North Liberty would bring various amenities to the growing city and create a new and very much needed entertainment district just south of Penn Street. The proposed development, referred to as Solomon's Landing, includes a 33,600-square-foot indoor rec center as well as a 32,909-square-foot bowling entertainment center with an an adjacent pizza ranch restaurant. Brandon Pratt of Lion Development Group told the North Liberty City Council last week the city needs to be a place where residents can live, work, and play. The next step is for the City of North Liberty to now fill the gap of the play component and, equally as important, keep those dollars in our community, Pratt said at a January 24 meeting. The nearly nine-acre project sits at the northwest corner of Penn Street and Jones Boulevard, 
and extends west to Saratoga Place. The four parcels of land are owned by Pratt Real Estate Management, Inc. Pratt said the proposal would generate 30 to $40 million of annual spending within North Liberty. To make Solomon's Landing Entertainment District a reality, we need city assistance and involvement, Pratt said. The North Liberty City Council was not required to take action last week, but did indicate interest in hearing a more specific financial proposal of how the city could be a partner, potentially moving forward with tax increment financing. Finishing up with the weather page today, looking for a very cold day, a high of 16 in Cedar Rapids and a low of 5, warming to the low 20s just through the rest of the week. The normal high for today is 29. The normal low is 11. We set a record high of 65 degrees today in 1989. The record low of 30 below zero was set in 2019. Sunset tonight is at 5.20 p.m. Sunrise tomorrow at 7.19 a.m. We have exactly 10 hours of daylight. We're in the waxing gibbous moon phase with moon rise at 12.44 p.m. and moon set at 4.48 a.m. That does it for the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. It's Tuesday, January 31st. I've been your reader, Kathleen. You can access a copy of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening and have a great, safe day.
from the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. What exactly is fossil water, and why have we consumed so much of it? No, it's not a new brand of bottled water imported from the days of dinosaurs. Fossil water came from melting ice sheets, ancient lake systems, and a generally wetter climate tens to hundreds of thousands of years ago. It percolated into porous rocks, which were then buried under deep layers of sediment, where it was sealed off from the surface, and there it stayed, until farmers discovered it. And in the second half of the 20th century, they started drilling wells into fossil aquifers and pumping like mad, turning sunny, dry places into acres and acres of green farmland. Crop supplies boomed. Food became cheaper and more plentiful, grown in formerly parched places like California and Kansas, and shipped around the world for people like you and me to eat, ingesting fossil water with it. The trouble is, fossil water is a finite resource, and new studies suggest that many fossil aquifers may become depleted this century, so that we won't be able to rely on them any longer. This could mean that the crops that depend on them could become less plentiful and more expensive again. All the while, population will likely increase, the climate will likely warm, our demand for water will continue to climb, which means we'll have to adapt to the lack of fossil water just as we adapted to its discovery, this time with more efficient crops and farming methods and more efficient use. For Earth Date, I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.